KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive. I am Tamrika Ftisiashvili. Uh, welcome to show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. And thanks for plugging in into our community with me this evening. Tonight on the show, I am happy to welcome Karen Anderson and Amelia England. They're uh, co-editors of forthcoming literary activism chapbook about Utah Lake. We're going to talk about that a lot. Karen is also author of the novel Before Us Like a Land of Dreams that was published, I believe, in 2019 by Tory House Press. And she's also a co-editor of the anthology Blossom as the Cliff Rose, Mormon Legacies and the Beckoning Wild. Uh, both are in Salt Lake uh, area. They're both Utah writers, and correct me if I'm wrong, Karen and Amelia, and they are mother and daughter team. So um, tonight, they're joining me with our Music Meets Activism series, in which we ask doers, creators, to share their work with us and some of their favorite music. Welcome to Radioactive, Karen and Amelia. Thank you. Thanks. Let's just jump into it. So this chapbook activism, or chapbook activism um, Manual. No, there's no manual. It's just literary activism chapbook. There we go. Sure. <laughs> okay, good. So um, I'm really intrigued by this. I, um, you know, started reading it. And the first thing that I read was the story, basically history shared of what happened when the first uh, Mormon settlers arrived around the Utah Lake. Uh, and you know, they were, they encountered Utes and Shoshone, I believe, that had lived there for years and years, right, for centuries. So can you just share briefly what happened at that moment? Because I feel like that's really the inspiration for the chat book. But let's start with that story. Maybe Karen, you can do sure. that first. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm hesitant to tell a story that is many hands away from me, but uh, as I understand the story and the way we introduced at least the call for entries or for submissions in this chat book was an encounter uh, when the Mormons settled in the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, Salt Lake Valley was in some ways semi-neutral ground, but many, many groups, including the Tipinogos people, the Paiute, Shoshone, Ute people, lived in Utah Valley and lived around Utah Lake and cherished that valley and cherished that region. And the area around it was very, very lush. The Western Shoshone people apparently lived very well on the vegetation in what we call the West Desert now. Um, so they were very, very unhappy about further incursion into Utah Valley. And um, of course, I'm sure if you were a Mormon settler and saw Utah Valley, you would want to move right on down there with that beautiful <laughs> lake and all right. those places. So the first encounter really was a, a, a meeting of don't come here, a bit of an agreement to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we can do this and we can all live in peace and we promise not to be horrible settlers and 
and uh, things kind of went not so well from there, especially for the people who had already lived there. Thanks for sharing that. So how, because uh, that is exactly the story that mm -hmm. I saw when I looked at the solicitation or for, for the call for submissions for the mm -hmm. chapbook. So maybe tell us why was that an inspiration and how is that actually connected to the solicitations that you're hoping to get? Well, for me, Utah Valley is my home. I was, I, I went to elementary school there. I, I, I graduated from high school in Utah Valley. Um, my connection with the lake is probably quite similar to a lot of other people who have lived there for a long time or call that place home or have called that place home. And that is a, kind of a love, hate, terror, revulsion relationship with a lake that has been um, really kind of suspended in its life and its meaning and its value and its interaction with the community. There's just an incredibly painful history uh, to that lake and also one that's, as, as we've been collecting this chapbook and talking to people, far more hopeful than we imagined it was. Um, so our relationship to, you know, call, making that call was simply, that's a lake that's existed for a long, long time among many, many people. And it really has been in the last 150 years that the, I don't know, really in some ways the jewel of the West has been rendered, um, I don't know me if it's rendered meaningless, but in, in many ways just in sort of a state of a suspended meaning or a, a suspended progress or suspended interaction. And that um, it's, I think it's kind of a cultural arrest that we live with, with that lake. And so for me, for me personally, returning to the questions of can we bring that lake back? Can we reclaim a relationship? Can we answer to the people that lived here much longer than the Anglo colonizers did? How do we, how do we move forward into a future where that lake exists? Uh, I don't think we can re it to what it once was culturally or even environmentally, it can be something far more beautiful and meaningful and better than what it is now. Amelia, I want to have you jump in. And while we're talking about Chetbook, tell our listeners a little more about the submissions. So how can they submit? What kind of submissions um, are you hoping to get? I mean, is it only poetry? Is it stories on poetry? Is it art? Just any kind of details, and of course the deadline and where p people can mm -hmm. send in their work. Right. Uh, so uh, the official deadline has actually passed for submissions, but we are um, taking submissions basically up until uh, a, a first press or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the um, the call was out for uh, shorter pieces just because we have uh, limited real estate in the chapbook. Um, poems, prose, uh, photography, any sort of original art inspired um, by just even coexistence, you know, just kind of being in the, the vicinity of the lake, you know. Um, but uh, we're, we're looking for voices that have at least a pretty established history or family ties or um, research ties. There's been a lot of kind of original research pulled in around the lake. Um, and then of course, uh, activists and, and political voices that are calling for some kind of, uh, direct action or change, of course. Um, but we have kind of a, 
cross-section of really cool voices that have come in from the submission so That's far. Um, people who have lived there and their families for generations. Um, people kind of like us, you know, who are, uh, grew up in Utah Valley and have always had the specter of the lake kind of in the background. Or um, more directly, it's the place that they walk down to every afternoon or every weekend or they go fishing there or they um, go out when the lake freezes over um, and have like a direct relationship with that lake. So, We, we do want to just mention we have um, a, a chat book is designed as really kind of a rapid production and it's a very old tradition. It's an old poet poetic tradition of putting together a book that's this one will be more or less a fancy pamphlet you know stapled like a zine together. almost uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah really it's about um it'll be about 40 pages but we got so many remarkable submissions and they're still coming in that uh tory house has wonderfully agreed to also extend it into a website or on a, an online edition so we're really working to um we can put a lot more graphics, a lot more uh, photography and art, um, you know, on onto the website. So um, we're right now, Amelia and I are in the process of of assembling the submissions, really trying to decide what will uh, how they'll speak best together. Uh, we really would like to mix the the professional writers with the more grassroots writers because there's just so much vivid detail. And so many vivid memories of that lake. It's it's. That's what I was going to ask you. So basically, yeah. it's people that have any kind of personal experience mm-hmm. with the lake or memory or thought. I mean, I'm guessing it could be all over the board, right? Yeah, we mm-hmm. have one submission where, uh, um, like Amelia said, it one family that quite a few of them sent submissions in together. They've lived by the lake for a long time, and in fact, they even submitted a. A piece, uh, a posthumous piece from a great aunt's journal, uh, a memory of her grandpa taking her fishing on the lake and getting his boots stuck and not being able to get out of the mud. I mean, just really wonderful uh, down in the water on the shoreline floating on the ice. <laughs> Seems exciting. I was excited yeah. when I saw the submissions. And um, once again, and we'll have this note, we'll have this on our uh, mm-hmm. show notes, but if people mm-hmm. want to submit, is there a website you can share with us? Absolutely. Yeah. We'll make sure we can give you that one. But um, Tory House Press uh, itself will will make sure, they're really, really good at making sure that they collect or make, or at least direct the traffic. And, that and so. I know we've passed the actual deadline, mm-hmm. but if folks listening want to submit mm-hmm. something, they have a week or two? Absolutely, okay, especially great. especially for the online edition. The, the print edition needs to go to press, and it's much more limited. But um, now being able to extend it to, a, to an online edition, we're very happy to keep that sort of dynamic and open and running and, and keep that design really opening up. Great. Um, Amelia, I want to ask you about your involvement with this project and kind of your reasons behind it. Mm-hmm. You, uh, uh, do you consider yourself an environmentalist, activist? How did you get into this and why is this of interest to you? Um, so I grew up uh, I grew up in Utah Valley. Um, we were in Alpine and uh, my parents did a great job of kind of instilling a pretty activist spirit in me pretty early on. <laughs> um, but uh, what was really important, of course, like, you know, all um, kids of awesome parents is they also have to kind of figure out their own path and differentiate their, their ethics and um, what speaks to them and what kind of pulls their, 
um, their work and their kind of emotional labor that they want to put into that. Um, but Utah Lake, uh, I don't want to treat it too much like a, a site of my personal development or anything like yeah. that, but uh, um, it is something that has um, just kind of been in the background of my life and the place that I drive along in the freeway to my grandma's house or the place I go out for. Um, I have memories of driving around it to places to have picnics or to keep going out um, past and kind of explore through those mountains. Uh, my husband uh, grew up in, in West Mountain, just south of the lake. Um, he has a much more uh, visceral memory of, and day-to-day memory of that place. Um, I also remember Utah Lake as being the, the spot right next to where I saw Geneva um, being, I think it was the, f- I, I don't want to get quoted on this, but I think it was the <laughs> last few years that it was actually spewing smoke okay. into the air and okay. um, all of that. And so the, you do have important mm, memories. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. And I, uh, I do remember when it was all raised, like in, yeah. I, I want to say it was just a decade and a half ago, something like that. I, I taught at UBU for 30 years. Yeah. And so our, our whole, I mean, yeah, I always mutters that she's one of the only people she knows who went to, uh, what, preschool and college. Preschool and college. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you so you our, might be one of the few. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our, our trek, you know, along that section has been really historic and, and really very, very dramatic as the as uh, Geneva Steel um, kind yeah. of in some ways revived and then and then closed down and, and finished itself again. So. Mm-hmm. Amelia, when I asked you um, to share some of your favorite music, mm-hmm. uh, one of the songs was Tiny Cities Made of Ashes mm-hmm. by Modest Mouse, but I really loved what you said about it. You mm-hmm. said, you talked about how as an, as an adolescent, this mm-hmm. song kind of brought you to your feet about your own responsibility in the society. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I, I love this idea of generational music that connects to different populations mm-hmm. and brings people to action mm-hmm. at different times. So let's have a listen to one of your favorite songs. Perfect. That's Tiny Cities Made of Ashes by Modest Mouse. I'm Tamrika. You're listening to Radio Active, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Tonight for our series, Music Meets Activism, in the studio, we have mother-daughter team, Karen Anderson and Amelia England, who are co-editors of forthcoming literary activism chapbook about Utah Lake. We've been talking about it. We'll have more information in our show notes. Um, I want to talk, actually, about your team, this mother-daughter team. I'm really intrigued by it because I am a daughter and I'm also a mother. Um, and uh, I love the idea of it, but it's not a common uh, creative team, I would say. I mean, I know it exists, but it's probably not the most common team. So maybe um, let's let's hear from you, Karen. I want to know how that came about. And I'm sure it has, you know, highs and lows. Um, and whatever you want to share, but mostly how, how did that get going? Well, we can blame uh, Kirsten Johanna Allen, who's the editor of Tory House Press in lots of ways. She comes up with all kinds of projects that freak me out, <laughs> and, then, and then they turn out really great. So, that was her idea. So she, <laughs> it was. Right. She asked us. Um, I, I, uh, 
love and hate Utah Valley like probably almost anyone who grew up there and ran away. Um, <laughs> and so I don't, she, she's very good at bringing up extremely ambivalent projects for me. <laughs> and they work. Yeah, but the great part was she, she also really loves Amelia's writing and loves Amelia's work and uh, knows that we're both just committed to language. Um, if there was any ever any friction, it was when Amelia was much younger, trying very hard not to be her mother, which <laughs> is completely fair. But uh, I saw her fight her remarkable inborn gift for language, just because it didn't seem original enough to her, and and uh, she's just I don't know. She betrayed me by uh, getting her master's degree in British lit. <laughs> She and your last name is England, yeah. so it all just kind of goes <laughs> she's together. A, yeah, she's yeah. a poet, uh, rather, you know, and an excellent prose writer as well. But she just found her own territory, and in that sense, I just feel incredibly lucky and honored to be working with such a brilliant woman. And she's my daughter too. <laughs> awesome, and um, Amelia. So you you've been writing for a while. So this is not mm -hmm. your first project, right? Yes. Tell us. Tell us. I want to hear a little bit more about your writing career. I know some of your mother, and we'll talk about a couple of other books that Karen's been involved with, but tell me about your journey and how this one feels different, maybe because you're working with your mom. Um, yes, my writing journey, even though I would like to claim my complete independence, <laughs> um, it is still uh, something that I'm really working to give a lot more time and development to in my life. Um, I got pulled into like the professional writing pathway. Um, so I've been in corporate writing, copywriting, marketing for about, I want to say, seven years now. Um, and then before that, it was academic writing. Um, but what I've always really sh uh, worked to do is to not exhaust myself and make sure that I'm giving my time to poetry giving my time to completely like private streams of thought that I need to make sure that I carve out the, the space for. Um, and then yes, working on kind of a little bit more like DIY projects, um, zines, any kind of submissions like that. Um, I love anything that has a, a community, a community voice around it. Um, a project that a passion project that someone has um, anything that where people are just gonna get out and print their own stuff and staple it together and and put it out into Salt Lake or put it out into Utah Valley um, those are those are projects that I love to be a part of and they always feel like just a pleasure rather than um, my mainstream job which is a bit of a chore sometimes and so. hopefully maybe those two things can go hand yes. in hand for you yes at some point yes yes definitely um, very good I don't want to bypass Karen your music suggestions however go directly because Amelia was just talking about her kind of uh, personal connection and mm -hmm. love that you have for projects and kind of, um, I want to go to the song that also you recommended, Body. Mm -hmm. And um, I also liked what you wrote about that. You said it was, um, you had a realization that your definitions of romance had crossed an irreversible threshold. Uh -huh. Can I have you talk about that just a little bit more yeah. before I play the song? It's uh, a song by Julia Jacqueline called uh -huh. Body. Yeah, so this song... Um 
gutted me when I first heard it. And it's just very quiet. It's very intimate. Um, it's not an activist song, you know, a typical, um, uh, you know, political call to action or anything like that. Um, but to me, it's a reminder of how very um, subtle and quiet ways that you can kind of reframe your life can can be very powerful, even if it's just like something really mundane and absurd, like a, a, a boyfriend you had when you were too young, you know, and they have the power to betray you. Uh, that's the, that's kind of the, the unveiling of this song. So, um, it's, it's not, um, it's not revolutionary by any means, but it's very personal and it's very authentic. So I was grateful to find it through you because I didn't know the song. And that's one of the wonderful things of KRCL. We get to interview amazing people, but then of course, we um, get to know new music. Mm-hmm. New Such a music. pleasure. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Body by Julia Jekyllin. Welcome back to Radioactive. My name is Tamrika Khtisiashvili. Here in the studio with me tonight, I have Karen Anderson and Amelia England. They're co-editors of a forthcoming literary activism chapbook about Utah Lake. They're still collecting submissions. Uh, We'll have uh, some more information in our show notes, uh, but it's being published by Utah House Press. And uh, it sounds like you still have a few days for Mm -hmm. to submit potentially for the print version, but definitely for online version, which is going to be kind of live version that you you both hope to continue. Um, Karen, I wanted to talk to you. You published a book before us like a land of dreams. Um, and I actually just uh, ordered a copy, and uh, I had a chance to kind of look through it a little bit. Just uh, I, I don't have the actual book yet, but um, it sounds like uh, it's also kind of coming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I want our listeners to hear about it. It's coming, it's kind of a story that follows a mother, yeah? It, it does. It starts out that way. Um, in fact, it's a book that begins more or less, non-fi- more or less nonfiction for, I don't know, the first 40 pages and then slips into uh, maybe schizophrenic voices. <laughs> I don't it sounds like voices it's lots of, of different mm-hmm. stories from the West. Yes, it is. Um, I, I grew up in a genealogy culture. I grew up in an ancestor culture, um, a very orthodox, you know, Utah Valley upbringing. Um, certainly have departed from the religion, but uh, you don't really depart from your people entirely. And uh, before it's like a land of dreams for me was coming to terms with that heritage and that ancestry. And so most of the people in that book who speak, speak from the grave, speak directly to the mother, uh, sort of account for themselves and tell their own stories. I'm, I, I guess it is activist. It may be the heart of my activism if there's something good or pure about it somewhere is um, I think people are human beings beneath their categories, beneath the names and stereotypes or whatever our identity words are. um, There's a speaking, acting human being beneath that that wants to speak. And to me, this was my chance to give my... uh, 
Mormon ancestors who I'm a little bit angry with a chance to account for themselves. <laughs> That's that you read my mind. That was my question. Uh, that how much of your stories were possibly based on yeah. some stories that you've heard maybe from families and so how much of it was fiction? Most of them are based on very small, very core stories, little snippets that kind of get passed from generation to generation. And um, I wanted to open them up. And so any possible way I could open them up is fictional. So I injected, a, I, I did quite a, quite a bit of research trying to understand context and place. But um, I'd say it's speculative, not fictional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very yeah. speculative. And yeah. that's so because I largely handed people voices to speak back to me as the sort of uh, persona of the book. And that oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to let people rip, you know. Will it be a giveaway to the book if I ask mm. you if there's some kind of solution if yeah. <laughs> okay um no but the mother figure drives away in a sort of uh flux and manages to turn around and come back home again so i guess that's uh yeah. i guess that's a yeah a homecoming resolution yeah, yeah yeah and a and a willingness to speak to um people that i guess in real life i feel quite a bit of antipathy for in a certain way it's um it, it was very, very wonderful for me to just humanize a lot of people. So most of the characters you could probably find in a genealogy or history book, or and, and most of them have kind of key stories that can be summarized. In fact, are summarized from story to story in about five or six sentences, but then the sort of novellas, uh, pieces of the novella that follow, um, are, are purely me making stuff up. Yeah, and well, it seems like my observation is that theme of home is really important to you. And and um, I think I read, and I don't remember if it was in your bio, but I read that you were kind of hunted by this idea of home, but idea of home as like among families and geography and friendships and communities, not just this uh, traditional definition of home. And this is a, this is a, a topic that's really uh, important to me too, but um, I I'm curious if I'm correct. Like, is home something a theme that you often go back to? Yeah, it's one that I kind of can't stop going back to. On that, I th- I think um, because I felt very very displaced in my own home, and I and yet I've lived in my home state and really home valley or home region my my whole life. Um, so understanding what home is as a family, uh, what it means as a, maybe as a professional, as a writer, feel at home in my writing has been a, a real journey. But um, I do think that that activism is about finding home or providing home because uh, being displaced from some sense of home is, is the terrible thing that we do to each other. Mm-hmm. I want to let you introduce one of the songs that you <laughs> recommended um, when I asked you for one of your favorite songs. And I'm talking about Ford Econoline by Nancy Griffith. And I know it's not about home, but it's about motherhood, um, sure. I believe, for you. But I, I don't want to speak for you. So mm-hmm. tell, can you just tell us why you picked this song? And then let's have a listen. Sure. Um, <laughs> of it is kind of about home. Um, one thing is set in Salt Lake City. It has a lot of great Salt Lake <laughs> references. But also, it's. Um, I think there is something about women finding their home or their place as artists or as whatever their gifts are. Um, where 
I don't know, my, the culture that I grew up in and still live very much in is um, surprisingly resistant to that. And um, it's, I, I think, a lifelong journey for many of us. And this is about a woman who makes a break. But also I think the thing I love about it is you know, the sort of feminine support for other women and other artists that she's just so richly reflected in this song. And here's mother-daughter team. So <laughs> home and motherhood. All right, Nancy Griffith, Ford Econoline. That was Ford Econoline by Nancy Griffith. In the studio with me, I had a pleasure of having Karen Anderson and Amelia England tonight. They talked about the chat book that's coming out. Uh, they're still looking for submissions. It's about Utah Lake. Um, it was great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. And there were so many more questions that I didn't get to, so I have to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, and also um, we just uh, were talking about Karen's book before us, Like a Land of Dreams. I wanted to promote it because it looks amazing. I'm really excited to read it. Yes. Um, thank you so much again for being in the studio with us. For the next episode, I passed on the mic to another creator and doer from originally actually our community from Utah, but now residing in Tucson, Arizona, Jonathan Bailey. He shares excerpts from his lyrical memoir, When I Was Red Clay, A Journey of Identity, Healing, and Wonder, published by Tory House Press, and some of his favorite songs with us. Stay with us tonight and have a listen. The International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City's Warm Welcome Winter Clothing Drive is coming up October 7th and 8th. This event provides newly arrived refugee families with warm clothes for the upcoming winter. Visit rescue.org slash SLC to learn more. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's love promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. Hi, this is Morgan, KRCL's membership manager. Fall Radiothon is October 14th to the 23rd. To make sure we start things out strong, this week only, we're giving all new and upgrading sustainers a $50 gift card from Park City's Egyptian Theater as an extra thank you gift for their support before our fall drive. This offer ends on October 9th, so visit krcl.org now to make a donation. Thanks. Welcome to Radioactive. My name is Tamrika Tisiashwili, and you're listening to Music Meets Activism series, in which we invite a creator, doer, maker to our show and ask them to share some of their work with us, as well as some of their favorite songs. For today's guest, I passed on the mic to Jonathan Bailey. Jonathan is an author of about-to-be-released lyrical memoir, When I Was Red Clay, a Journey of Identity, Healing, and Wonder, published by Tory House Press. Jonathan grew up in Utah and currently lives in Tucson, Arizona. In the audio postcard, you're about to hear Jonathan explain some of the songs that he picked and why, as well as he gives us some readings from his upcoming book. 
Let's begin with one of Jonathan's selections, which happens to be one of my favorite artists as well, Muddy Waters by L.P. Muddy Waters by L.P. This song is a relationship song that L.P. later recognized to be a metaphor for how we treat the planet. And when I was Red Clay, it was really important for me to show the communities that inhabit our own community and our obligations to make sure we take care of those, just as we would take care of a loved one. Not the last of my kind. Here's author Jonathan Bailey reading from his upcoming book, When I Was Red Clay, A Journey of Identity, Healing, and Wonder, published by Tory House Press. On a telephone pole perches a red-tailed hawk, a female. She unfolds her copper wings, flashing her primary feathers. I struggle to focus on her because today I am reckoning with a deeper truth. My sexuality is one obstacle, my disabilities another. Together, somehow, they form the pith of my yearly troubles, my humanity. There is an irony here in this life I have chosen because animals have stolen my spirit, yet I rarely work with them in a professional capacity. The reason is simple. Animals break me like a ceremonial water jug. I cannot stick a lens in their face and come home unshattered, as if the act gathered some elusive loot. I become so sensitive to their anxieties, I truly come to fear myself. It is a sensation of crawling out of my skin, seeing the world with rodent-fixed senses, and finding some lanky hominid in my crosshairs celebrating his birthday. Somewhere in those bis-colored eyes, I know it's fear. Because I fear me too. Humanity leaves so much heartache and destruction, yet every sad documentary of dead polar bears and burning forests and graveyards of stricken amphibians does not do enough to persuade humanity's political willpower. As climate change ravages human and animal communities, many will die, while someone, likely a sickeningly wealthy someone, picks their teeth with the talons of the last hawk. I yield to that same desperation, to that feeling of helplessness that prevents us from acting meaningfully. I am angry. I am afraid for a future that I may not have. I feel defeated in the face of so much death, so much extinction. I know it will only get worse, and I didn't ask to be born. So often, I can no longer discern if these feelings of disconnection come from my psychology or the flawed human world the hawk and I inhabit. That was Dead of Night by Orville Pack, and... Here's Jonathan Bailey, author of When I Was Red Clay, A Journey of Identity, Healing, and Wonder, telling us about the song and his selection. From what I know about Orville Peck, we've lived similar lives on different sides of the globe. 
Peck, having grown up in South Africa and spending time outdoors to reconcile his sexuality with aspects of his life that were important but rigid and their willingness to grow with him. Orville Peck achieved something I hope people find in When I Was Red Clay, reclaiming spaces where we were raised and belong, if not conventionally. As I grew up with a lot of country music and a lot of outlaw country music, Peck provides a warm home I didn't know I needed. We lived in what some might call a rural bubble, a town of about a thousand residents, more livestock than people, and vagabond dogs townsfolk assured me would not bite. This was their first untruth. Most of the streets were wider than necessary, no sidewalks, overgrown weeds, a few tall trees spilled into a picturesque patiche of farms and fields. Here, beyond the reach of 1990s progress, people rarely left, and few arrived. With them, ideas of diversity and acceptance evaporated into rumors of a rapidly evolving, read, devilishly tempted world. Isolation was essential to preserving unadulterated faith in the teachings of the Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormon Church, a religious institution shaped by the teachings and translation of Joseph Smith in 1830s New York. In our household, the list of prohibitions was long. Tea, coffee, late-night cartoons, most video games, and media that might subject us to the effeminately inclined unmentionables. This was not a spoken rule, as speaking would bring truth to that three-letter word invoking unspeakable temptation, gay, but my understanding was carved deeply in pregnant silence. As an official within the Mormon church and a member of the priesthood, my father was given the power and authority of God, evidenced by a vial of olive oil he clutched in his vest pocket. He placed the consecrated oil on the heads of the sick or those needing to be blessed or initiates into various roles within the church. With a drop, he evoked the power and authority of the Lord. The room cloaked in a suffocating musk of cologne as we dipped our heads in prayer. Questioning my father was tantamount to questioning God. If he placed his faith against people who identified as gay, who was I to question him? Say I'll come back My kitty see you too Falling Apart by Leon. This song reminds me of my experience with my family leaving the church. And like a lot of relationship songs, uh, leaving the church is a breakup. And uh, you feel estranged from your family who are faithful. And you feel estranged from this community that you've created over your life. I think the line of the song, what do you do when you love someone but feel like you can't go on, really sums a lot of the relationships uh, that have broken since leaving the church. Confusion. I feel a lot of that lately. I feel crazy for wishing things were simpler, because simpler usually means worse. Last night, I was reading coming out stories, and if I'm being honest with myself, I felt envious. I understand that coming out is a difficult thing, 
and there is significant privilege in having a home and a family and its aftermath. But I still need resolution, even if I lose everything in my wanting. Is that too much to ask? Mormonism, at least my community's brand of it, isn't straightforward. Difficult thoughts are repressed. Emotions are hidden. If there was any resentment, it would be reserved for local gossip, never spoken to my face. It feels like I'm experiencing my relationships from the other side of a peephole. Blurry figures, muffled words, they can be so nice to me and so cruel. Kindness is delivered with forked tongues. Wind is a compliment, withering condemnation. Wind is kindness, manipulation. Wind is acceptance, just a ploy of superiority. Whispers, chatter, gossip. Recently, I received text messages from a member of my family. They intended them for somebody else. Within them, they claim that I am not a smart person, that gay people are an abomination, that they feel sorrow watching a person fall so far from the faithful wagon. What hurts most is their patronizing grief, their sadness that weeps from a wound of self-admiration. I cannot forgive of what I am not aware. Honesty, even if it breaks relationships or becomes something that pains me more, Confusion can be worse than rejection because loving and hurting blurs boundaries. I hate that I still can't trust people, not even my family. I hate that every genuine compliment is delivered like a knife to my chest. That was Jonathan Bailey reading from his upcoming book when I was Red Clay, A Journey of Identity, Healing, and Wonder. The book is being published by Tory House Press. As part of Music Meets Activism, we asked Jonathan to share some of his favorite songs with us. Coming up, Redecorate by 21 Pilots. This song is about a kid who passed away and his parents left his room as it was, rather than redecorating. I also feel it serves as a powerful metaphor for the experience of a lot of queer individuals in presenting themselves authentically while trying to keep those around them comfortable, realizing that when we ultimately pass on, we need to do so in the bodies and names that we choose. Take an inventory of his life. I am a man, but sometimes I hate it. It is an inexplicable sensation, dysphoria, defined by the Merriam-Webster as a state of feeling very unhappy, uneasy, or dissatisfied. Sometimes I am all of those things. Sometimes I am none. I feel privileged for being so comfortable with my anatomy, for feeling at home with any pronoun. I am lucky for that. Still, I lose myself in a suit because it makes me feel like a man and I am not one. Little acts put me back into my body. During puberty, I took scissors to my face. I never purchased a razor because I was still in facial hair denial and chopped my bristle until I bled down my parents' sink. I kept cutting at my neck and body, trying to sever the timeline that made me masculine. These scissors stayed in the bottom of a drawer to emerge when I was alone terrified of the shame being uncovered by my parents. Bodies were eternal, I was taught, and God didn't make mistakes. While gender was not a topic of discussion when I was a kid, 
The sentiments were unambiguous. Men were men. Women were women. As leading church authority Dallin H. Oaks put it many years later, binary creation is essential to the plan of salvation. Those like myself who tilted toward their assigned gender had choices. I simply chose to be masculine and learned to occupy a fraction of my being. I understood, though, that I could hide from neither God nor myself. We knew what was behind my clothes, particularly when I succumbed to temptation and shaved my chest bare. That was Jonathan Bailey reading from When I Was Red Clay, a book being published by Tory House Press. We asked him to share some of the readings from the book as well as some of his favorite songs. And the last one on the list, he says, is one of his favorite songs of all times. It is Meet Me in the Woods by Lord Purim. For me, this song reflects a lot of what I went through while leaving the church and coming to terms with my sexuality because you have this idea of darkness and you don't know what that darkness is but you go into the darkness and you find that you've been disillusioned into creating this darkness it is a psychological darkness but once you are in it once you go into the woods so to speak you find that there is so much there to heal yourself and to grow as a person Jonathan Bailey again, reading from When I Was Red Clay. When we were younger, we were taught that Mormonism was like a mirror, a perfect reflection of the heavens. Other religions, they would say, are a fractured betrayal of this mirror, each scavenging for a fragment of glass, a thin image of truth, shining a dull light upon their unfulfilled followers. What I have found is that, like a mirror, Mormonism presents only the image of yourself, but that image is backwards. Once broken, once you have found the strength to leave, the mirror lies in a dust of powdered glass. You prowl the floors for a sliver, a shard, a reminder of your former self that now flows through your fingertips like fine grains of desert sand. It is only time and honesty that will give you back your personhood. After leaving Mormonism, I did not find God in temples, nor in the church that topped the grassy hill a few miles from my parents' house. In fact, I did not find God at all. I found something more profound in soil, with my hands pressed against the earth, feeling the journey of ancient roots. I sensed a powerful spirit when walking among bristlecomb pines, surviving for thousands of years in rocky and inhospitable soils. Their polished silver branches poised upwards as if to confirm their divine presence. In these spaces, aloneness is not isolation, but incorporation, an enduring connection to our birth world. My testimony is no longer spoken behind a podium, but lost to the stirrings of wind, upholding the beating wings of canyon wrens. This story is the loss of that testimony and the gaining of something else. It is an homage to the secret and unseen, like the gently flowing indigo flowers of Dahlia tentacolloides, an endangered species in the legume family with tentacle-like glands. 
It is a vision of light in my darkest places. Yet it is not the darkness that casts a haunted shadow over my life nor my youth. In wilderness, darkness is rich, bottomless, and unimaginably bewitching. In wild spaces, as in life, I need not fear the shadows, only my lack of seeing. That was Jonathan Bailey reading from When I Was Red Clay, his book being published by Tory House Press. It's a journey of identity, healing, and wonder. Jonathan grew up in Utah and currently lives in Arizona, but he will be in Salt Lake City at under, under the Umbrella Bookstore on October 19th. Check out the show notes for more information. I am Tamri Kurtisiashvili. Have a great night. Bye.